Understanding and relating to our own identities can be challenging as it is. But growing up as part of a racial minority, not only in society, but also within your own family unit, can present a whole new set of emotional obstacles. As an interracial adoptee, I've had to grapple with coming to terms with my own identity, in addition to coping and at times accepting the identity placed upon me by American society. For those of us who live it, it can be something of a complicated topic. So let's talk it out and cut through the noise with Breaking Dishes. is Breaking Dishes. I'm Liz Malone, and I'm very thankful to have you joining me for today's discussion. My topic for today's episode, Identifying with Asianness, a discussion on interracial adoption, identity, and racism. Joining me today is Thaden James, pop culture writer and Charlotte editor for the Charlotte Observer. Thaden is a fellow international adoptee from South Korea. And he recently wrote a column in The Observer titled, I'm Asian American and I'm hyper aware of my Asianness, especially now. Okay, so welcome, Thaden, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Liz. It's good to be here. So I'm going to just start with some information about your background. So you were born in South Korea during the mid 70s, and you came to the United States by way of international adoption by a Caucasian family who at the time had one biological daughter and soon after welcomed a second biological daughter into their family. Do you know why your adoptive parents chose to adopt from abroad? So yeah, I was born in Seoul, uh, I think, sometime in 1973, probably in the fall. Um, My birthday on my uh, naturalization certificate is September 23rd, but that's kind of just a guess. I was essentially, you know, dropped off on the steps of an orphanage when I was uh, uh, probably just about four or five months old. And I think so. My parents, my adoptive parents, are Quakers, and so um, they are have always been <laughs> kind of as Quakers tend to be peace-loving people who um, are very mindful of sort of trying to make the world a better place. And I think as part of that, they had always, I think, been interested in adopting uh, a child to give a child a better life who might not have otherwise had one. I don't know for sure that they were not planning to have more children after that. But at the time, um, my older sister was about three years old and they had... um, gone through the adoption process, which was a lot easier back then, as you may know, (laughs) Uh, a lot less rigorous. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I came through an agency called Holt International. And at the time, so this was 1974, the prospective adoptive parents don't have to go overseas like they do now. They just basically uh, were flying big plane loads of of babies over to the U.S. And, you know, the, the, the matching was done before you ever even met the child. And they essentially brought me over on a plane and my parents met me for the first time at the airport in Washington, D.C. 
So you were similar to me. I, I refer to myself as being imported. Exactly. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. No travel required. Right. We already come through customs. Hopefully our tariffs are paid. Exactly. <laughs> so in your column in the Charlotte Observer, you mentioned that up to and including high school, you didn't really know one single fellow Asian person. Mm -hmm. So what was your exposure to Asians during that time? Media representation of Asians during our childhood was stereotypical and even racist. So I'm curious to know what did it mean to you while growing up to be Asian? So I grew up in a small town in eastern Connecticut called South Wyndham. And it's about 30 miles east of Hartford and probably 25 miles west of the border with Rhode Island, something like that. I'm not sure that the, my math is right on that. It was definitely 30 miles um, to the east of Hartford. So, and I always like to refer to it as the poor side of the state. It's the side of the state that no one really knows anything about, except for um, there's a university that has a really good college basketball team that's basically in farm country, and that's UConn. So my hometown was 10,000 people, and I think the city that I attended high school in was 17,000 people. And there was a, I guess, a relatively good-sized, although still way in the minority, Puerto Rican population in the city where I went to high school. I maybe remember one or two other Asian students in my high school and I don't remember interacting with them at all. And I would say that I didn't go to a large high school. It was uh, my graduating class was 220 people. But I just feel like if I'm remembering this correctly, it just seemed like that they were kind of quiet and not very social. And I was really, even though I was an introvert, um, I tried as hard as I could to be an extrovert. I really wanted to have friends and be accepted and liked. So I, I, I did the best I could to, to project as an extrovert. And frankly, when I was 16 years old, I was embarrassed of a little bit. I don't know if embarrassed is the right word, but I definitely was self-conscious about the way my physical appearance, you know, being Asian. Mm -hmm. And I think that part of that not making any attempts to connect with the one or two other um, Asian students in my high school was just probably, uh, why would I want to put even more of a spotlight on myself by, you know, oh, I, he looks like he's Asian and he's just hanging out. It's just the Asians hanging out together, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I would say that, you know, in high school, I was, I was on the fringes of the popular crowd. I had to work really hard to, <laughs> to get there. The friends that I had were pretty accepting of who I was, I have no idea. You know, I never really, I'm not close with people from high school anymore. I've never really talked to someone about how I was perceived. You know, now that they're uh, also in their 40s and probably are, are way more mature and have a less closed-minded perspective, hopefully, of the world, I would be curious to know how I was perceived in high school. I think that I was generally thought to be a person that was interesting to be around, but maybe not interesting enough. So particularly for like, i didn't have a girlfriend in high school and I had a lot of friends who were girls. I sometimes wonder if there was like this hesitancy to be romantically linked to someone who looked different from them. Cause I would say that 90% of my high school class was white. Mm -hmm. 
like I said, I was self-conscious of the way I looked. It made me more self-conscious. And I mentioned this in the column because I looked different from the family that I was a part of. And I don't think that that was something that people in that community were used to, you know, so I felt like I stuck out and probably I did stick out. And then on top of that, it was probably amplified by the fact that I was self-conscious about it in terms of racism. I don't remember a lot of it. I do remember just the kind of typical stuff that was, it's probably still somewhat common today, (laughs) but um, back then, you know, the kids making slanted eyes and making fun of the way Chinese people or Korean people or Japanese people, there was no real difference to kids then between those things, but, you know, making fun of, people who speak in Asian languages, plenty of karate jokes and Bruce Lee comments and things like that. But Well, they seem to forget that Bruce Lee could kick some serious butt. So. <laughs> yeah, right. Just saying. Just exactly. saying. But... Unfortunately, I could not. I don't think I progressed oh. <laughs> past a yellow belt in, <laughs> in judo, which I took for um, probably a year or two before, again, sort of realizing, wait, I don't want to be, I'm trying to like make people forget that I'm Asian. I don't want to you know, be associated with martial arts or anything like that, because that's what the jokes are about. I don't want to mm-hmm. be a stereotype. As a fellow South Korean international and interracial adoptee, I'm often asked about whether I've been back to Korea, which I have not. And when I express my personal disinterest in going, people seem to be surprised or even disapproving. So what are your thoughts and experiences, if any, on whether international adoptees should feel compelled to revisit their countries of birth? That's a good question. For a long time, you know, I was, I just wasn't interested for some of the reasons that I talked about. I just wanted to focus on not being different. I wanted to be the same as everybody else and expressing interest and going to back to Korea was, it was something that didn't interest me. It actually wasn't until our daughter was born. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was 2001. So she's 20 years old now. You know, when she was born, my view on that kind of changed. And in part, by that time, I'd become more mature. I was I, in college, got more involved in, in trying to connect with people of Asian backgrounds and had started to become more secure about that kind of thing. But really, I think that when my daughter was born, what struck me about that was it was the first human being on the planet that I had you know, a blood type. A biological relation to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that made me really start to think more about sort of reconnecting with the place I had come from. Now, (laughs) I've been talking about going for 20 years. We actually had booked a trip to Asia um, with a stop in South Korea for May, this past May, so two months ago. But due to COVID, we didn't go. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm at a place in my life now where I'm pretty comfortable with myself and uh, also very interested in traveling the world in general. So that was something I was really excited for. You know, I had a conversation with someone the other day, actually, about biological parents and whether I was at all curious about, you know, trying to find relatives back in Korea. And that one just has never interested me. Mm -hmm. I, I can't explain why. I've always also thought that I just that, that too much effort would be involved because the record keeping was so much different in the 70s. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's not like it was, you know, if, if you're adopted today by for quote unquote mystery parents, probably 
20 years from now, it's going to be much easier to, to track those people down than it would be to track down, you know, the people that gave you up 47 years ago in the 1970s when everything was on paper. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they were, what they were saying to me was, you know, it's still probably possible and it could be really interesting. And I've, I've thought about it. I don't know. Is it something that you ever, do you know? I think I have a little more information than you were provided, but it all comes down to the accuracy of the information. Yeah. For for all I know, I I have a name of a biological mother, but that could be the Korean version of Jane Doe. I, (laughs) I honestly don't know. But when I've been asked that question, like you, I've never really had interest in finding biological relatives because I grew up with a loving mother and father. I feel that my family was complete, so I didn't feel that I was missing a relative in my life, but I've always been interested maybe in finding out some medical history because I hate sure. checking that box, the unknown, every time yeah. I go to the doctor's office. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, with this, while I said that I was self-conscious about, I guess, being out in public with my adoptive family when I was younger because of the way it made me feel about standing out and um, not fitting in. I, I feel the same way. I, you know, they were extremely loving parents. Um, they continue to be. And as far as I'm concerned, they're my, they're my real parents. No, I completely can relate to that. So Thaden, growing up within an entirely white family while residing in a nearly all white township in Connecticut and now married to a white woman and having a predominantly white circle of friends, do you feel that your quote unquote white upbringing has in some way preconditioned you to live most comfortably amongst white people? Probably. Yeah, I think that that's probably true. I would say that my guess is that if I had grown up in a African-American home, I, I, yeah, I would naturally think that that would make me feel more comfortable. I guess I would say also that there are other choices I've made in my life that have put me in a position where I have more, a lot more white people in my life than not. You know, I do lots of marathons and lots of triathlons, and that tends to be a somewhat white. You know, our daughter was in gymnastics and cheerleading, and so your social circle is often dictated by who you're that your that your own kids are hanging out with, and those gymnastics and cheerleading tend to be sort of expensive sports activities, and so you know most of the parents that we met through that are are white. I think what you're saying really demonstrates that sometimes we're not very conscious of some of the decisions that we make, that they are preconditioned, and we just don't really acknowledge it or even aware of it. Yeah, it's just been, it's an interesting path that I've taken in the sense that it started with the need for not just acceptance, but I really wanted people to like me. <laughs> I, I I think it was because I was just trying to overcompensate in the sense that I thought that I had this strike against me where people were predisposed not to like me. Yeah, and I think that's a perfect lead into my next question, which is um, you stated in your recent column, quote, I think about my Asianness 
every day of my life, not every other day, not once or twice a week, every day, end quote. And so would you provide some examples to demonstrate the impact of this on your daily life as well as on your psyche? Some of the things I talked about with my parents and my sisters growing up about feeling uncomfortable sometimes out in public uh, because I look different from them and I was clearly with them. Mm -hmm. uh, I still feel, and I try to fight this as much as I can because you know, I'm 47 years old and I should be grown up enough not to let this kind of thing weigh on me at all. But when I am out in public with my wife, sometimes uh, holding her hand or putting my arm around her, I still like have that sense of people looking at me mm -hmm. <laughs> and I don't know what their judgment is. That, that doesn't really matter so much as it's just that the feeling that people are looking at me because it's something that they're not used to seeing. Well, and uh, just a general awareness because, like you mentioned, you know, my I, I'm surrounded by mostly white people in my life. Mm -hmm. Friends, most of my closest friends are white. You know, so going out with them to places to get a beer or to grab lunch or to go for a run, I, I feel that sense of being different. I think that everybody, when they walk into a room, they scan the room, right? Or they, when they look at a person, I, the immediate identifiers are, and just it's, it's second nature, right? They don't even, they're not making these deliberate identifications. It's just part of the thing that registers in your brain when you look at someone, this mm -hmm. person is a man, or, you know, this person is a woman, this person is white. When you, and I feel like when you're, when someone's talking to, to me, they, are aware that they're talking to someone who's Asian. They're not talking to someone who's white, right? So I always feel like that that's kind of hanging over me, not necessarily in a bad way, but just as an identifier in the same way they know that they're talking to a, a individual who is male. Your Asianness is always very present. Or, or an individual who is short or tall, right? Mm -hmm. Or overweight or skinny or, you know, has one arm. We look at people and we... We don't necessarily judge them, but we identify them in a way that, you know, there are certain things that we're going to say to our, to our male friends that we're not going to say to our female <laughs> friends, vice versa. And, mm -hmm. then, and think that, uh, you know, being Asian, I don't know what this would be, but you might make a comment to someone who is not Asian that you wouldn't make to an Asian person. Not that you're being overly racist, just in the way you're not being overly, but it's just the way we interact with people. We interact with people kind of based on who we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess that's what I mean is in, in when I say I feel it all the time because I know that I feel it when I see someone on the street. I don't think, oh, you know, there's there's someone who's Latino. It, it might register to me that they're Latino, right? Um, mm -hmm. So I think that <laughs> it's not so that we can immediately lend our biases to the situation but it's again it's just the the way i feel like everybody navigates the world <clears throat> when i think of that happening i think of people doing that to me and again it, it all may go back to the stuff i talked about with insecurities as a kid but i do i i am aware of the people around me in certain ways and i think that everybody is like that so as you know the temperature for anti-asian rhetoric verbal attacks, and violent assaults 
came to a boil this past year with the senseless, hate-driven attacks on Asians, including a deadly attack on an elderly Asian man in California. So these events seem to be driven by the belief that China is to blame for the COVID-19 pandemic. This theory has been echoed with a generous helping of anti-Asian hate speech by countless politically driven and racially biased reporting and hate-laced social media opining, intersecting with disenfranchised Americans seeking someone to lay blame. In March of this year, eight people were tragically murdered, six being women of Asian descent in the Atlanta spa shootings by suspected gunman Robert Aaron Long, who will be facing the death penalty on hate crime charges brought by the Fulton County DA. Upon reflection of these recent events, as well as on your own Asianness, you wrote, quote, I've never worried about being the potential victim of a hate crime until now, end quote. Would you explain what you were thinking when you wrote that sentiment? Given everything all the horrible things that have happened against the Americans, it just amplifies that feeling of standing out. And I wouldn't say that I'm looking over my shoulder when I'm walking down a street in the middle of uptown Charlotte, but it certainly has, again, just made me hyper aware of the fact that I look the way I do. Mm -hmm. And it's something that it's just not something that can be hidden. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's not something that keeps me up at night necessarily, and I don't walk around in constant fear. I, I just feel like it's one more reason for me to let these feelings of insecurity sort of bubble up inside of me um, about the way I look. I almost felt like when I was reading the news stories and seeing the reports on television of these attacks, in some ways, I have to admit that I kind of felt like, and, and I know there's a responsibility because I'm a journalist to um, report the news, but there was a part of me that was like, stop giving so much attention to this because I, to, to me, I just felt like it's just making things worse for me. <laughs> to me, this person who has inside of him the um, propensity to, to feel insecure about being Asian, it was like, you're just going to make it harder for me. <laughs> I think that it was becoming a trend. And I thought that the media reports were fueling that trend in a way that it was like giving awful people almost like this excuse to, to do these things because it was becoming a trend. So as an Asian American, I did not always feel as though I was a part of a protected class throughout the vast majority of my life and career. And that anti-Asian racism at times has been reduced to being just being politically incorrect or distasteful, but not viewed as racist or hateful until now. And unfortunately, it took eight people losing their lives to bring the subject to the forefront. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, at the same time that I said that I was talking about how there was a part of me that felt like I was becoming more apt to be the victim of a hate crime, the more stories I saw about it, um, not just because of the media coverage, but also because it certainly seemed to be becoming a trend kind of even without that coverage. 
it made me feel good to see how much support the cause got, you know, from corporations, but also from um, celebrities who I thought really stepped up, the president included, to say that this was wrong. My next question for you, Thaden, it comes from a deeply personal place for me. I have felt at times that I am viewed as being less American because of my Asianness. So, for example, I've had strangers assume that I don't speak English very well or even at all, when in fact English is my first language, as is for millions of other Asian Americans. I've had people ask me, What's your nationality? And when I answer that I am an American, which is in fact my nationality, their response is almost undoubtedly, no, I mean, what are you really? Can you relate to that on any level? Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) When I'm looking someone in the eye, you know, it's different when you're on the phone, but when I'm talking to somebody in person and they ask me where I'm from and I say Connecticut, you you can immediately see the wheels turning. Or they think you're being smart, smart with them. Right, right. And I will usually, at that point, add on that I was born in Korea and then adopted by white parents. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that most of us, us meaning people who come from backgrounds like you and I, have experienced that. And it's funny because we don't get our clothes dry clean anymore, right? Because we don't ever have to go into an office anymore. <laughs> but, but back when we actually had to get dressed up and go to work... You know, go to dry. We had a dry cleaning service in our lobby of our building, and I would walk in. And it was owned by a Korean couple, and they would um, even <laughs> even after having been in there several times, I'd walk in and they'd start speaking to me in Korean, and I would explain to them that I don't speak Korean. We have a tailoring business that's like a mile away from our house, and. Um, even though I don't speak a word of Korean, the quote-unquote Korean discount. Um, <laughs> and that's the interesting thing about, again, this kind of not feeling, to me at least, not feeling fully American and not feeling at all kind of in some ways Asian mm-hmm. is that I look different from the people in my family and the people that I spend the most time with. Um, and yet the people that I look most alike, if they're really from Korea, I can't communicate with them. <laughs> Sometimes I'm self-conscious and a little embarrassed about that when someone in a Korean restaurant or a Korean grocery starts speaking to me in Korean and I can't understand what they're saying. <laughs> it's a little embarrassing. I, I mean, it just activates that part of me that feels insecure. One foot in each world, right? Exactly. Yeah. So at this time, I'm going to remind listeners of some high-profile moments of racist behavior. And Thaden, I'm going to get your take on each of them, especially as a uh, pop culture and entertainment writer. I'm sure that some of these reports may have actually even come across your desk over the years. And I'd like to make it very clear first that I take no joy in sharing these examples, but I feel that it is important to share some examples of how pervasive racism is and how it's made its way into the mainstream. 
So first, here's a recent one. ESPN reporter Rachel Nichols was recently caught on a hot mic expressing her dissatisfaction for being passed over for an assignment covering the NBA Finals. She implied that her colleague, Maria Taylor, who is Black, was being awarded the assignment because the network was under pressure to implement more diversity initiatives, which Nichols also referred to as being a joke. Thayden, any thoughts on that? I was uh, talking to a friend about this the other day. I actually was at the Washington Post when Rachel was Rachel Alexander working there um, <laughs> as a he was covering Washington Capitals. That's been a long time. It's been 22 years. I guess it was not a wise thing to say. And I think that someone in her position should understand that by now, even if she doesn't. I, clearly, she didn't know she was on a hot mic. If you're having a conversation with a business associate, even if you're friendly with that business associate, I think you need to be really careful about the language that you use. As I you know, mentioned before, we all talk a certain way when we're talking with our friends that may not be politically correct. And I think that that is just the way that um, humans are wired is to kind of talk off the cuff. And if we policed everything that everyone ever said to anyone, we would all be in trouble, I think. But I think the best rule of thumb is that when you're talking to someone who is a business contact, that you just need to be a professional. I think the kids on the playground would refer to that as being a sore loser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. If we can learn from the kids, right? Right, right. Whenever you're actually, you know, whenever you're rejected for something, you get you can get a little heated. But I don't know what she was thinking, quite frankly. So here's my next one. Pop star and American Idol judge Katy Perry opened the 2013 American Music Awards show in full-on geisha hair, makeup, and wardrobe on stage in a full-blown, old-world, Japanese-themed performance of her hit song, Unconditionally. Perry faced criticism for her performance for both using an ethnicity as a costume in essence, appearing in yellow face, and without understanding how the image of the geisha perpetuates Asian stereotypes for women and its history in Japanese culture. Perry later made a second cultural faux pas in her music video for This Is How We Do, where she donned cornrows in her hair. She addressed criticisms on the Pod Save the World podcast, and acknowledged both her lack of education, her appropriation as opposed to appreciation for other cultures, and that she did it wrong. She's made mistakes, and she's learning. Um, cultural appropriation is the right <laughs> word there. I think the types of risks that you know an entertainer who can be over the top like she can be. We live in a world now where people are... I don't know if more sensitive is the right way to put it, but emboldened to speak their mind when something bothers them. I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think that we're learning a lot more today than we did when you and I were young about, you know, what is hurtful to people and what's not. I'm actually glad that those things happened because she's so she's high profile enough that when she makes an apology, I think it makes a difference and people listen and 
it certainly is an opportunity to help educate. It's certainly a teachable moment for her, but also when she makes an apology in the way she made those apologies to help other people at least have that perspective to understand that this kind of thing can be hurtful. This past May, The Tonight Show host, Jimmy Fallon, had a controversial video resurface and go viral of a skit from the year 2000 during his cast member days on Saturday Night Live, where he appeared in blackface as part of his impersonation of fellow comedian Chris Rock, triggering the Twitter hashtag Jimmy Fallon is over party. In addition to releasing an apology statement in response to the blowback, Jimmy made what many have described as a heartfelt apology on his show, directly addressing the skit and his personal reflection on himself, as well as the larger issue of racism and his personal responsibility and commitment to do better. I mean, it's a good opportunity for us to look, examine how much we've changed. I think that if you not everybody, but there are lots of people and entertainers, I think, in particular, um, because they're trying to get attention. They take risks. But I think that lots of us said or did things 20 years ago that we would want to take back now. Um, I was actually watching with my wife last weekend. We watched the movie 48 Hours with Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy. It was from 1982. And there was some pretty horrible racist stuff sort of casually tossed around in that movie um, Mm -hmm. terms to describe African-Americans that I will not repeat. You just wouldn't see that in a movie today. Not, not so casually. So afterward I Googled just 48 hours (laughs) uh, or racism or something like that. And yeah, I mean, um, people have written articles about how that was, you look at that movie now, it's kind of, it's shockingly racist and it's Eddie Murphy and it's Nick Nolte who are two big movie stars. Um, but you know, times have changed and I think that you're seeing a lot of this digging up of old videos and, um, interviews in which celebrities have said things that if they said today, they would, uh, be (laughs) frowned upon heavily, but the world has changed a lot. And I think that again, like I was saying with the Katy Perry thing, it's an opportunity for celebrities to, if they feel it's appropriate, and a lot of them have, to apologize and get it sort of out there publicly. It just adds to the conversation about race and what's appropriate and what's not. And I think that that's a pretty healthy conversation. In 2002, clothing retailer Abercrombie & Fitch came under fire for selling a line of T-shirts which depicted Asians as offensive stereotypical caricatures with derogatory slogans such as, quote, rickshaw, hoagies, and grinders, order by the foot, good meat, quick feet, with a picture of a Chinese character with slanted eyes driving a rickshaw, and another with the slogan, Wong Brothers, laundry service, two Wongs can make it white. According to reporting on the Chicago Tribune's website, From April 2002, Tom Goulet, manager for customer services at the company's New Albany, Ohio headquarters, said, Asian Americans misunderstood the marketing campaign 
which in the past has poked fun at women, Irish Americans, and skiers. Quote, anyone who buys our clothes knows we don't target any particular race. We pretty much make fun of everyone. But if we've learned anything from this, it's that perhaps we need to get a little more community feedback before we rush to market. What are your thoughts on that, Thaden? That's funny that, um, what was it, Asian Americans, women, Irish. And skiers. People and skiers. <laughs> Another protected class of people, I believe. Right. <laughs> I'm not drawing the... Uh... <laughs> That's funny. Advertising campaigns are interesting as compared to, you know, I'm talking about celebrities making comments or trying to create comedy because when you said 2002, I thought, oh, well, there's no way that in 2021 a clothing company in their right mind would try to do that. But I actually wouldn't necessarily <laughs> put it past someone to create advertising campaign like that. Obviously, it's a bad idea. And I can't believe, frankly, that, you know, after some of the things that Abercrombie and Fitch has done, just generally speaking, that they're still in existence. But yeah, I mean, in some ways, to me, that's more hateful and just plain inappropriate than things we were talking about with the entertainers, because I think Katy Perry, I believe, wasn't trying to be insensitive. I think that she was ignorant. Yeah, her whole it was more about ignorance in terms of what people might find offensive. But, you know, her whole stick is sort of outlandish fashions and all of fashions are inspired by something and then with jimmy fallon we've seen that from comedians throughout history they'll go to great lengths for a laugh and some things land and some things don't if i recall correctly that landed fine in i can't remember what year you said that was in but and it's not something you do today you know we watch um there's that movie Tropic Thunder from it's probably it's probably ten years old now, where Robert Downey Jr. is in blackface and he got nominated for uh, an Academy Award, um, and that's not something that you would see being done today because it's just not appropriate. The world has changed. I think that um, most people get that. I'm not sure that um, Abercrombie and Fitch does, but. Well, especially when they say that Asian Americans misunderstood their marketing campaign. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how how much more tone deaf can a corporation be? I remember that. And it sounded like something out of a Saturday Live. It sounded almost too ridiculous to be true. Mm -hmm. In 2014, Stephen Colbert, then host of The Colbert Report, put out a racist tweet from the show's Twitter account which said, quote, I am willing to show hashtag Asian community I care by introducing the Ching Chong Ding Dong Foundation for Sensitivity to Orientals or whatever, end quote. The show's tweet was deleted, but not before it was screenshot and shared, creating a viral campaign led by activists with the hashtag Cancel Colbert. According to reports, the tweet was taken out of context, as it was intended to parody the then-named Washington Redskins owner Dan Snyder and his launch of the, quote, the Washington 
Redskins Original Americans Foundation in response to controversy surrounding the team's racist name. So in other words, Stephen Colbert and his writers felt it was funny to address racism with more racism. Yeah, I don't think it was funny. (laughs) (laughs) Ditto. Uh, I do think, right, I do think that, again, like I was saying with Jimmy Fallon, the comedians are, to some extent, they're like paid, encouraged to take risks. I feel like even, what's that been, seven years now? Even seven years ago, people as smart as Stephen Colbert should have been smart enough to realize that that was too great a risk to take. Twitter is a dangerous thing, and I think it will continue to be. Like we we see it not every day, but practically every week. Someone making a tweet that is ill-advised. And again, I tend to give comedians a little bit more latitude because I think that what's the what is the saying? It's something like if you try not to offend anyone, you end up offending everyone. I think it's it can lead to kind of an unfunny comedy landscape if we don't take any risks if you don't try some outrageous stuff whether it's physical comedy or jokes but race has become such a touchy subject i think you leave the um you know isn't the 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 way that it's always been a safe place to make jokes about asian americans if you is if you're asian american yourself or um the place to make jokes about African-Americans as if you're African-American. That to me seems like a safer sort of space to kind of play in and experiment with as opposed to sort of stepping outside your lane when it comes to the topics of race. And this was another example of victim blaming, if you will. Well, right. That we Asians (laughs) didn't understand the context. Right, right. And we yep. sh- and how oh my God how could you be offended you didn't get the joke there was a joke there why didn't right. you get it right and the notion that oh was it over your head you're supposed to <laughs> no really we're making fun of Dan Snyder I swear <laughs> yeah. yeah do you believe that do you believe that or do you think it was damage do you think it's damage control seriously I think there's always a lot of spin going on yeah. there's a yeah. crisis management yeah. yeah last but certainly not least. Former President Donald Trump's normalization of racially charged names for the COVID-19 virus, such as the China virus and the Kung flu. And I know you do comment on the Kung flu reference in your piece and your take on it having some degree of humor, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I laughed. I've, I've been known to laugh at inappropriate humor before. <laughs> and I would agree that, is it clever? Yeah. But when it becomes echoed as a word referring to a class of people, I feel like that's when it starts to really cross the line. What do you think? Yeah, I'm, I would say that um, I'm less sensitive maybe than others to racially fueled humor than the average person. But I think that that all goes kind of back to my sort of insecurities that we've talked at length about. You know, I, I get it. While it can be funny in the moment, if you think about it, if you read between the lines on a quote-unquote joke like that, 
yeah, it's pretty insensitive and can be hurtful. It can also sort of exacerbate problems and create more negative sentiment toward Asians. So I understand that there is a conflict there. I like all kinds of humor and I've been known to like some, some pretty outrageous <laughs> types of comedy. So I str- I do struggle with that. I struggle with that because of the things that you talked about. Um, I can't help but laugh uh, when, when there's something that I think is funny. I think laughter, real laughter, right. Is a reflex. Real laughter though is also very complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, there can be lots of reasons you're laughing and part of my laughing at jokes that have to do with Asian Americans again could have a lot to do with being insecure about being Asian American. And in your article you mentioned that you refer to yourself as a banana. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yellow on the outside, white on the inside. Yes. Which <laughs> I have been referred to as a banana. I have referred to myself as a banana. I know other Asian people who have used that as an interesting well, <laughs> analogy. Right, and because I can, I, that's kind of a joke, right? It's a, um, mm-hmm. it's a joke. So if we say it's different, people may have different ideas of whether that's acceptable or not, whether we say it or not. But when we say it, it's more acceptable, certainly, than when someone who's not Asian American, than than having someone who's not Asian American call us that. Right. So it would it would have been interesting if someone who was Asian American had come up with Kung Flu. You know, would we then have a different view of it? And would that, call, would that you know, make a different would we make a different determination whether it was OK to laugh about it? Um, for a lot of people, probably not. But for some people, it might. For the same reasons that I feel comfortable <laughs> calling myself a banana, but um, if uh, my white friend did or my black friend did, I might be like, wait, what? Wait, huh? (laughs) So I think that the common denominator when it comes to anti-Asian or any racist rhetoric for that matter is that there has to be real dialogue because if we refuse to listen, we are refusing to understand the different perspectives. And so, Thaden, I want to thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your personal stories, experiences, and viewpoints. And I really hope that you will join me again for another edition of Breaking Dishes in the future. Thanks for inviting me, Liz. It was fun. It was a great conversation. It was great to have you. For more information on Thaden Janes, you can find his work at charlotteobserver.com or by following him on Twitter at Thaden Janes. And that is spelled T-H-E-O-D-E-N-J-A-N-E-S. For more information about me and this show, please visit breakingdishes.org. You can also follow me on Facebook at Breaking Dishes Podcast or on Twitter at Liz Malone. Special thanks to Jacob Setzer and an extra special thanks to Thaden's parents, Norman and Jacqueline, as well as my late parents, Carol Ann and Joseph, for making this episode possible. Until next time, always remember to be bold, be brave in the face of adversity, and believe in you.